This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Keely. Hey, Chris. Welcome to Heard It on the Sidelines. Heard It. Heard It on the Sideline with Shotgun Spratly. Spratly. Welcome to another edition of the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast with Shotgun Spratling. Thanks again to Keely and Chris for the intro, and thanks to everyone that is returning to listen. For those first-timers out there, the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast is part of the Peristyle podcast family. It's the podcast where we discuss what's going on at USC, but also try to pull back the curtain to give you an insider's perspective from the people around the USC athletic programs. On today's episode, we're taking our virtual stroll back over to the Galen Center to talk about USC basketball. The Trojans are now 19-4 and and are back in sole possession of first place in the Pac-12 after a win Monday against Oregon. A win that featured an absolutely stunning start to the game as USC came out on fire on both ends of the court. They opened up a 17-1 lead as Oregon didn't make a field goal until eight minutes into the game. The first nine of those points were scored by senior guard Tajidi, who was on fire in the first half. He nearly outscored Oregon all by himself. He knocked down five three-pointers and poured in 21 points. Oregon had 22 in the first half. Edie will join us in just a minute to talk about the Trojans' big win on Monday, bouncing back from a loss to Arizona, and a little about his basketball sojourn that has taken him from Connecticut to Southern California with multiple stops along the way. The Santa Clara grad transfer has come to USC this year and become the Trojans' most consistent perimeter player. He's averaging more than 14 points per game, including 22 points per game in his last four games. We'll also talk with former UCLA player turned ESPN college basketball analyst and color commentator Sean Farnham, who talks about Monday's win for the Trojans, the direction of the USC program, the most important thing the Trojans need to do to make an NCAA tournament run, and also what the Pac-12 needs to do to make the conference more nationally relevant. But first, I want to start with two positives and a negative. Since we're talking USC basketball, the first one has to be that the Trojans are back in first place. They lead UCLA by half a game. They lead Colorado and Oregon by two and a half games. They have the tiebreaker on UCLA and Oregon, and they have their opportunity to play against Colorado this upcoming Thursday. They can eliminate Colorado and Stanford with a win on Thursday from contention for that Pac-12 regular season title. My number two positive is wake-up calls. The team had a wake-up call after getting pushed around by Arizona and then responded great against Oregon. And another wake-up call was in that Oregon game, Andy Enfield decided to switch his lineup up. He put Drew Peterson, put him on the bench, and brought Ethan Anderson back in the starting lineup. Well, hey, it made both of those guys come alive after that switch. Anderson had six points, a career-high seven rebounds, and eight assists to one turnover in the starting role, while Peterson came off the bench and provided a double-double for the first time in a while with 15 points, 11 rebounds, and four assists there. On the negative side, USC is dealing with an injury issue right now. Starting forward, Isaiah Mobley missed the Oregon game with a calf strain he suffered against Arizona. And he has this going into a game where USC's going to need their bigs, going against Colorado, a team that has two guys down low that can really pound on the big men. So Isaiah Mobley needs to come back to help out his brother Evan. We'll see if he's available for them on Thursday. 
But USC's also used a shorter rotation with no Noah Bauman against Oregon. So we'll see how that kind of works out when they go on this mountain trip where it can be a little bit more difficult due to the altitude if they need to actually expand their rotation a little bit and get some of their bench guys even a little bit extra playing time in this one. And now we'll bring in our guest, Taj Edie, senior guard for USC, who's been a, a little bit of a nomad of the, in the basketball world, jumping around from different place to different place throughout his career, but has found a home here at USC and been found a home in the starting lineup, leading the team from the backcourt. Taj, thanks for joining us. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, man, tell me about your journey as a basketball player. You're an older basketball player now. You've gone from Connecticut to Tennessee to Georgia to Missouri to NorCal and now now to SoCal. You know, what has it been like for you on on this odyssey that you've been on as a basketball player, and and how has it kind of progressed for you? Yeah, like you said, um, it's definitely been a journey to say the least. But it's kind of just where my basketball journey has taken me. You know, I was kind of a late bloomer, you know, coming out of high school. So uh, prep school was kind of like mandatory for myself just to be able to develop on and off the court in terms of my body and things like that. So the time is where, you know, my basketball journey kind of led me. But, you know, I'm appreciative for every, you know, every experience I went through because it definitely, you know, led me to the position where I am now. And I'm just, you know, blessed to be able to play at a program, you know, like USC, you know, such cachet and heritage and things like that. So, you know, I'm just blessed and I'm, I'm happy, you know, things kind of went the way they did. What would you say has been the hardest part of that basketball journey? The hardest part, I, I mean, I guess would say, you know, having to be away from family, you know, for extended mm-hmm. periods of time. You know, I've been away from home since I was about 17 years old. And, you know, I rarely go home. You know, I'll go home for a few days here and there just to visit, you know, kind of say hi and bye, things like that. But, you know, I haven't really, you know, had the opportunity to really spend extended time back home. So I guess that would be, you know, probably the most difficult part. Has that actually made it a little bit of an easier transition for you this year? I mean, obviously, the the COVID protocols and everything, you guys just aren't being able to live a normal college life. The fact that you, right. you know, you're used to being away from family, whereas some other players you know, that are local players you know, may not have that luxury and you know, maybe have struggled with it, at least early in the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think me moving around so much, you know, early on in my basketball career, I think it's definitely prepared me for moments like this where you're kind of isolated in a sense where you can only, you know, phone calls and FaceTime and things like that. So, yeah, I think it definitely, you know, helped me adjust to this pretty quickly. Well, let's jump into this season. You guys are coming off of, of an interesting weekend where you, you lose to Arizona and they snap your seven game win streak. And, you know, what I wrote, and, you know, I'll be honest about it, I said they punked you guys. You know, they, they came in and they were more physical, they were tougher. But I love the way that you guys responded in that Oregon game and kind of attacked all those same areas. I'm curious how much was said by the players between that Arizona loss and the Oregon game, you know, how much did you guys talk amongst each other about kind of what happened in the Arizona game and kind of making those corrections against Oregon? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We talked extensively about just our, our effort and our intensity, you know, throughout that whole game. We felt like we let too many 50, 50 balls, you mm-hmm. know, get away from us, you know, offensive rebounds, you know, plays like that where you can really change the tide in terms of momentum, you know, and things like that. So, you know, we just wanted to come out against Oregon and really, you know, match that intensity and, and just show that, you know, we could we could be a physical team as well, as well as a skill team, offensive defense. We could be physical as well. So we just wanted to just kind of, you know, put that Arizona game behind us and just show, you know, we could kind of move forward. But we're, you know, we, we could be that kind of rugged team if we have to be. And definitely had to be rugged in that game. There wasn't a lot of fouls being called. What do you think the team showed in that win? 
Yeah, we just showed a lot of resolve, and we showed a lot of um, this character, you know, with a quick turnaround. We could have really just dwelled on that loss and allowed it to linger and affect us in our origin game, but we kind of just, just put our next uh, our best step forward, and we allowed ourselves to just, you know, be ourselves. And we were able to just come out and play with the right intensity. You know, we were prepared for Oregon. And we did, and especially with Isaiah Mobley being out, you mm-hmm. know, just having like that next man up mentality, you know, it was, it was a it was a big statement game for us in terms of seeding, as well as just for our more overall morale. And and obviously one of the things with this group is you, you had the second half against Arizona where you guys played much more, you had more intensity. The first half against Oregon was fantastic. A little bit of a lull in the second half. How do you guys sustain that intensity for forty minutes? What what do you have to do to make that become a constant? Right, yeah, we just have to have that desperate mindset at all times. I think we came out mm. in the game, I think it was like 17-1, to 1, something like that. We were really desperate. You know, we wanted to show that, you know, that, that Arizona game, that, that didn't reflect who we were as a ball club. So, and then, you know, throughout the game, you kind of, you know, you have a big lead and things are going well. You could kind of take your foot off the gas a little bit. But we just have to be mentally tough in that aspect where, you know, we can't allow things like that, like that to happen because, you know, in March Madness, you know, things to kind of go left and then, you know, your season's over. So you don't want to leave anything up a chance. So you want to just understand that every possession is precious and, you know, take advantage of every opportunity. Just continue just to get better as a ball club and just be mentally tough in those, in those situations I think will be, be huge for us. You've stepped in as an older guy, and you talked a little bit um, in the press conference after the Oregon win about how you feel like you've been a leader since you, you stepped on uh, onto the roster. Do you feel like it's it's your task to to tell people you know about those things when you know there is a little bit of a lull in intensity? Is it your job to to yell at someone or tell someone, "Hey, we got to pick it up"? Is that on you, or is that on someone else on the team? You know, who kind of fills that that role? I think we have a lot of leaders on our team. We feel like everybody has the the platform to you know speak their minds, you know whatever they see on the floor, or you know we have that comfort comfortability with ourselves. But in terms of myself, yeah, I definitely you know I carry that, you know even though I, I'm not a captain on the team, I've always carried that you know throughout the summer and things like that, just leading with my voice, you know leading by example, and just you know given you know my own experiences, you know obviously I played basketball on this level for for a long time, so I've. I've gone through a lot with this uh, game of basketball. So just being able to express those things to my teammates, you know, maybe give them some kind of just kind of just a different lens they could look through, you know, things they may not have endured, you know, throughout their career because they're so young and things like that. So, yeah, just trying to just lead, you know, every way possible because I know it's going to it's gonna uh, carry itself, you know, for us in March. What were kind of your expectations for yourself when you were being recruited by USC? You know, what was kind of the conversation? And, you know, when they say, hey, we want you to come to USC, what, what, did you, what role did you kind of envision having when you, when you stepped on to, to campus? I kind of knew that I would have a significant role. I knew coming in that, you know, USC, they were limited on guards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ethan was the only guard really returning. So I knew there was an opportunity for me to play, you know, significant minutes and things like that. And I just knew – you know, with my talent level and things like that, you know, just given the opportunity, I knew I knew I would thrive. So just speaking with Coach Andy and the rest of the staff, I just knew that this was this was an ideal situation. You know, we had a lot of talent coming in, obviously Evan, um, and then guys like Isaiah and Ethan and Max, you know, making that sophomore year jump. I knew that this team was going to be special. So I was, I was excited before I even got on campus. 
you get to have this excitement level and you guys start off pretty strong, but then you lose Ethan Anderson. Uh, he goes out with the back injury. How did things kind of change as far as the guard rotation and, and just the, you know, what was being asked of you to, to kind of take over that ball handling role? Yeah, it's kind of just playing more of like that playmaker kind of style instead of just really looking to score, you know, really trying to get others involved and things like that. But yeah, when Ethan went down, you know, it was a big, it was a big hit to our team. You know, he does a lot for us offensively and defensively, you know, distributing and, you know, guarding and being physical for us, uh, things like that. But it's kind of just like that next man up mentality. We knew, well, in the moment, we didn't think he would be out for that long. <laughs> yeah. But we just knew, you know, we had to keep things, keep things going. And we knew we had a talented ball club as well. Uh, even though Ethan is a great player for us, we knew that, you know, we would kind of be okay. How would you say the the guard group and maybe the rotation are are different now from the beginning of the season? It, I felt like you guys kind of felt each other out for a little bit when Ethan was out, and now that he's back, it took a couple games for for Andy in particular, uh, but for you guys to figure out what exact roles you're going to fill with him back in the lineup. Where do you feel like you're at now compared to the beginning of the season when he was healthy? Yeah, it, it, it's just about it kind of like those growing pains a little bit. It's kind of just figuring out, you know, what rotations work. Do we want to go small when Ethan's on the floor? Do we want to go big? You know, just kind of just figuring those things out. And I think when he uh, first came back off an of injury, you know, we were still just figuring it out. You know, you only played limited minutes at certain at certain spots. So it was just, you know, figuring out how we could, you know, integrate him back into the offense, how we were, you know, without holding anybody back or stifling, you know, what, you know, the good that we were doing, you know, throughout that stretch. So it was really just figuring it out, you know, just communication, you know, just figuring out spots where we could be successful and things like that. But um, I think we figured it out pretty quick. And one of the things you said um, recently was that you think the team plays at a higher level when you're more aggressive. What do you have to do to, right. to be aggressive? Because you also mentioned that it's not necessarily just about you, you know, jacking up shots being aggressive, but uh, what is it that you have to do to be more aggressive to help the team out? Right. Yeah, it's really just, you know, just trying to make all the right reads. Like you said, being aggressive doesn't require you to, you know, to take all the shots and things like that. So it's being aggressive, you know, off of the pick and roll and transition, you know, trying to draw the defense, you know, just trying to put as many eyes on you as possible because that just opens it up for everybody else. You know, Evan, you know, he gets that, you know, every game before the game even starts, obviously because he's so talented and, you know, projected to go so high in the, in the draft and things like that. So he gets double teams basically in the locker room. So, you know, when, you know, when good things like that happen, you know, it opens up myself, you know, to get easy shots, everybody else as well. So, you know, just having that aggressive mindset, you know, to draw on the defense, it just opens things up for everybody. So I just try to be as aggressive as possible for sure. Yeah, how unique is it playing with that guy? I mean, there's not many skilled seven-footers like that to begin with, but then to be as unselfish as he is at the same same point, how unique is it playing with a guy like Evan Mobley? Right, yeah, I think that's that's one of his greatest attributes, you know, outside of his talent on the floor. He's just, you know, he's an amazing teammate, and he's just extremely unselfish. And that's, that's what contributes to championship basketball, you know, because if he was, like, if he's getting doubles and triple team that, like he is, but he's still jacking up, you know, shots that aren't really high percentage shots, then, you know, that hurts our team. But, you know, just like a game um, the other night against Oregon, you know, he only takes, you know, a few shots, six, seven shots or whatever. But, you know, we're winning, we're winning convincingly because he's making all the right plays. He's passing out of double teams and things like that. He's running the floor. He's defending, you know. So it's just, it just speaks to who he is. And then, you know, when I see the mock drafts and he's, you know, he's projected to go three or four, you know, I'm looking at it like, man, this guy does everything. You know, he does everything. There's no way he's not the number one pick. It's not even close. 
one of the reasons why he doesn't have to take as many shots is because there's been this other guy on the team that's been on fire. His name is Tajidi. I don't know if you've heard of him, but you know, you coming in, you're, you've averaged 22 points the last four games. You know, been really hot, especially the first half, getting the team off to a really good start. What, what's kind of clicking for you recently? Yeah, just kind of, um, just my confidence level has definitely grown. You know, just having some, you know, big nights as of late. Um, I feel like I've been scoring, you know, kind of off and on throughout the year, but it's just been a little bit more consistent as of late. But I think that's just just contributes to my just my overall aggression coming out with that mindset, just you know, trying to make plays for my team, you know, to start the game, you know, right away. And then I kind of catch teams off balance a little bit. You know, it takes them a while to adjust to what's going on. You know, because I come out with like with big halves pretty often as of late. So kind of just catching teams off guard is not really expecting me to you know go on these offensive tears like that kind of just you know gets our momentum going early um and just allows us to kind of roll throughout the game now one concern i do have is that you've only scored three points in in, you know against the oregon against uh, arizona state after the the big starts that you had which i'm not really concerned about that but i have a concern about the wear and tear that that a guard your size can potentially take, and how what effect that has later in the game. Because when teams are really physical, and if you have to hold, uh, if you have to dribble the ball a bunch, like you did in the UConn game, it felt like you wore down a little bit there. What are some things that you do to try to prepare your body so that you're good for a full forty minutes, even though you're you know a little bit smaller, and teams are probably going to try to be as physical as they can with you. Yeah, it really comes down, a lot of it is just your mental preparation, just mm-hmm. understanding what kind of game it's going to be. Like, I knew against Oregon um, last night, I knew it was going to be, you know, a tough night in terms of just the physicality and the wear and tear on my body. I knew, you know, with Isaiah being out, I knew it would be a shorter rotation and I would have to play, you know, even more minutes than I usually have. But, you know, just kind of just preparing myself. Um, I know I'm in, you know, supreme shape. You know, I don't really get tired like that. I know I, I've been blessed where I haven't had any injuries, you know, no contusions, bruises, anything like that. So I've, I've been blessed in that aspect. So it's kind of just mentally preparing and understanding what the game is going to entail, as well as just taking care of my body off the court, icing, rehabbing as much as I can and things like that. But, you know, I've been fortunate in that aspect where, I, you know, I felt great. You know, even after the heavy minute game last night, you know, I wasn't sore or anything. So, you know, it's kind of just, just preparing myself mentally as well as taking care of my body. So I'm just, I've been blessed with that. I'm sure USC fans will be happy to hear that, knowing that you know the NCAA tournament, you know, you'll get a day off and then you'll be right back at it, so you can play those heavy minutes in back-to-back games. There is there any? Do you have like a routine that you do in between games, or is it just kind of, hey, if I'm, I'm a little sore, then I get a little ice in, and do a little bit of extra stuff? Right. Yeah. Um. I ice. I ice every day. Um. I think that's the biggest form of therapy you could do for your body. I think that's. I mean, it works wonders. You know, I started doing that early on in my high school career, just doing ice baths and things like that. And I slowly progressed to like the ice chambers, you know, as I've, you know, kind of evolved and moved around in my career, just finding different methods and things like that. But yeah, I think icing is icing is huge. So I I make sure I do that often. I'll tell you, that's one thing I don't miss is those 6 a.m. ice baths, you know, after an early morning <laughs> practice or 8 a.m. ice baths before going to high, you know, for, before a high school day. Those were not fun for me. Right. Um, so right, I don't miss right, those. Right. But, you know, those those are definitely important for the body there. Uh, a couple more questions for you. I can let you get out of here. I know it's your off day. But, you know, I was very interested in your comments on Max Agbont-Polo last night. He had a big three. He had a big dunk. He finished with seven points, I think, tied his season high. But he's been a very yeah. polarizing figure on our message boards. I say he's a guy that's got to get some playing time because that the development is so important, the playing time is there. And you said that he's a guy that USC needs every single game. Why is he an important right. player coming off the bench, and, and what do you think the future holds for, for him? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think I think his future is unbelievably bright. You know, so young, really still just, you know, really realizing who he is as a player, really just his IQ is growing. Because the player that he was in the summer, he's he gotten so much better to this point now. We just have the utmost confidence in him. He brings us, you know, his versatility, his athleticism. You know, he's just a nightmare in transition, you know, consistent with his jump shot. You know, that that's starting to come around as well. So, you know, we just we just need him to be who he is. You know, we have one to come in with that confidence, understand that, you know, we need him to play well for us to be as successful as we want to be. You know, just him, you know, being able to play the four spot, you know, really being a matchup problem for other teams. Um, when we go small, you know, he, he could just do a lot of things for us. So, you know, we're going to need him for sure. Where is, has he grown defensively? I mean, that's an area where obviously you see the length and the athleticism. You say this guy could be a defensive stopper. You know, he, he reminds some people just the, the you know, the body type of Matisse Thibel at Washington. So where has he grown? Right. Because he's gone from being a guy that you know you were concerned when he came in as, as a defender, as a freshman, to now he's playing those crunch time minutes, you know, as a stopper against a guy like Chris Duarte last night. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's really more just about, you know, like a mindset because defense, when like sometimes your shot could be off and things like that, your defense can never be off because defense is just depending on effort and just your want. So, I think now he understands that, you know, he could really be one of the best wing defenders, not only in our league, but in the country with his, his length and his athletic ability, his quick first step, his ability to slide laterally and things like that. But I think now he's just taking more pride in it um, and understanding that he's going to be put on top guards, the top wings and stuff like that. So having that mindset of like, I, I want to shut this guy down, you know, not only for himself, but, you know, because he wants the team to win. You know, I think, you know, he's starting to realize that as he's starting to just, you know, come into his own as a player. Well, I asked you about his future. Got to ask you about your future as well. What does the future hold for you? Obviously, everyone gets another year of eligibility. Um, as a fifth-year senior, is that something you want to take advantage of? You plan to start your professional career? Have you kind of figured that one out yet? Yeah, I'm still, you know, still up in the air. Yeah, it really just, it's still like a big question mark. You know, I'm I'm upset that, you know, I wasn't able to experience you know, the USC experience at, at, in its whole, you know, without having the fans and, you know, school being closed, everything being virtual. So, you know, a lot of those things are on my mind as well. Um, just wanted to experience that as a player. But, um, yeah, still just, you know, kind of figuring it out. Well, Taj, thank you so much for the time, and, and congratulations on the big wins against Oregon. Big road trip coming up against Colorado. One last question about them. What do you guys got to do to to be able to be successful on this road trip? Obviously, Colorado is a team that beat you guys earlier in the season. Right. Again, with our mental preparation, understanding, you know, our scout, understanding what guys can do what, you know, make sure we're locked in, understanding, you know, what plays each team runs. And then the physical aspect, you know, going to Utah on the road, you know, it's never, you know, it's never fun really, you know, with that, with that high altitude and things like that. So, you know, just having our, our mindset ready, understanding that it's, it's going to be a war. I feel like our March Madness has started already, you know, with every game being so important. So, you know, just having that desperate mindset, you know, understanding that, you know, we control our own destiny with this. So, you know, just trying to take advantage of everything. Thanks so much to Taj Edi for joining the Hurting on the Sidelines podcast. Now we bring in our second guest, ESPN analyst Sean Farnham, who can also be found on Sirius XM talking Pac-12 conference action. Sean, thanks for joining us. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. You know, it's exciting time of the of the season. A couple of weeks left, and suddenly there's a lot more games on the schedule from the Pac-12. Uh, you know, what'd you kind of make just first off of, of the Pac-12's rescheduling decisions the last week or so? 
I, look, I think it's in alignment with what we're seeing across the country. Big 12 did the exact same thing, trying to try to get in as many games as they possibly can to at least level the playing field a little bit is finally get the conference tournament so that they can seed them properly. I think that's kind of where we're at right now and also determine, like in some cases, a true champion of, of a conference race. So I like the, the innovation uh, that's taking place. I, was, I got in this discussion with Guy Haberman on Pac-12 Radio uh, Monday morning, and they were talking about the game that the Trojans were playing on Monday night and how that, you know, that's it's going to be unfair because it's awkward, it's different, it's Monday. And I'm like, guys, these kids are used to playing every day. Like, it's, it's not going to be – that's not going to – whoever wins or loses the game, it's not because it's played on Monday night. Like, that, that has no bearing whatsoever. Like, the NCAA tournament, by the way, is also going to be played on a Saturday, Monday. So maybe it's good practice for the NCAA tournament, you know, that you have to play on Saturday and come back and play on Monday. But the time to prepare in between games is exactly the same in which they would normally have in a regular conference week. It's just shifted and changed a little bit and, and a little bit more loaded than it has been in the past. So, you know, look, these guys are good enough to get through it and excel at it. So uh, I, I don't worry too much about it. I, I do like the fact that we're seeing some great games down the stretch zone conference play across the country. But in particular, I credit the Pac-12 uh, for their efforts. Yeah, next week should be, you know, action-packed. Obviously, there's several games that were rescheduled for the early part of next week. Uh, USC is going to, you know, got their final matchup with Stanford. A game that has now been, their, their, their two matchups combined have been rescheduled. This is the 10th iteration of the schedule. From the very beginning, you know, last year when they announced that it was going to be a 20-game conference schedule, it'll be interesting when they finally can get on the court for the second time. Also, Oregon, you know, hosting Arizona and hosting UCLA. Should be some really good early week matchups there as well. Yeah, and we need and we need it. And look, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into Monday night's game and what it means and all those type of things. I think the Oregon Ducks are a really good basketball team. And I think UCLA obviously – uh, has had a very successful season in particular, considering the fact they played so long without Chris Smith uh, due to his injury that he suffered this year during the pandemic, especially that kind of gets accentuated. And, and I think that McCrone has done a really good job there as well. What I think is when you have these top tier games, what ends up happening is you give opportunity for people to improve their seed line right now. And that's mm-hmm. the most important thing for the Pac-12, the ability to improve your seed line and put you in an opportunity to find success in March. And when you have a good, if you, if we want to change the national narrative of the Pac-12, the conference has to show up in a couple of weeks here. Uh, when, when the five teams, six teams, whatever gets into the NCAA tournament, four teams gets into the NCAA tournament to advance and have an opportunity to represent the conference with the national eyes on it. Yeah, we'll definitely get into you know where the Pac-12 sits nationally in a little bit. But first, we've got to get to the game on Monday. For, for some of our USC football fans that are listening that may not fully understand the context, how big was Monday's win over Oregon for USC? Uh, probably the biggest win of the season. Mm. I mean, honestly, I, I just because Oregon was charging. Oregon had swept the desert, had gone home, got the win over Colorado and Utah, looked like they were kind of becoming the team a lot of people thought they were going to be at the start of the year. Now, they've had a ton of disruptions with injuries and COVID pauses and all those things. But that's why the, the significance of that game. And, and I kind of hope, to be honest, that it would be more of like the game we saw between Michigan and Ohio State. It wasn't, obviously, <laughs> with the way that game started. Um, we were kind of like, oh, so Isaiah Mobley's not playing and this is still happening? Mm. Wow. Okay. Um, well, this doesn't look great for the conference optically. And it didn't. It didn't look good for the conference. It looked sensational for USC. And I think that that's the, the significance of this win. I think definitely puts USC in that four-seed line with the potential to get a three-seed if they continue to win. And I think that's 
huge for them moving forward as far as their chances and opportunity to really advance in this NCAA tournament. When, when Tajidi's making shots and really when, when the Trojans are making shots on the outside, it, it opens up so much of the inside. And when you have the wherewithal of, of an Isaiah and, and an Evan Mobley, and I know obviously, again, Isaiah did not play in this game, but Mobley doesn't force anything. They, neither mm-hmm. one of them do. Like, they really allow the game to come to them, and they play with such poise that it's so easy to celebrate and watch and go, man, this is so good. Like, I, like, I just love their feel for the game and their, 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 their b- basketball acumen. Uh, of understanding when when do I need to take over? When do I need to get somebody else involved? And to have the skill set that they both have is just off the charts. And obviously Evan speaks for himself. But really impressive victory for USC. I think if if the eyes of the nation were watching, and hopefully they were, that when they were watching that game, they start to credit USC for the quality of basketball they've played really all season long. Uh, I think it's funny when I talk to people on the East Coast and obviously working at ESPN, a lot of the people I talk to are on the East Coast. And I so what do you, what do you make of the Trojans? I'm like, have you not watched? Well, you know, the Pac-12 down. Yeah, uh, have you not watched? This team's really good. Like, they're really, really good. Uh, but are they doing the Lob City thing, you know, like Andy did at uh, Florida Gulf Coast? No. No, not at all. Like, like they're just, they actually really defend. And they, they got great length. And they can rebound. And they pass and move the ball well. Like, they, oh, okay, yeah, okay. So hopefully they were watching so I don't have to deal with those questions anymore. Um, <laughs> I mean, and those, those are coming from, like, radio guys that I do interviews. Like, ESPN sets me up on these radio tours. And I like go, and they're like, oh, so you live out west. So, well, you know, what, what about this? Like, you, you guys clearly aren't watching. Um, but I think it, the national narrative will start to change on the Trojans as more and more people see them down the stretch. And I anticipate they continue to win games. I really do. I think they're the best team in the, in the conference. They've been the best team in the conference for a while. I thought that game against UCLA kind of was, like, a challenge to see, like, okay, who's really the top dog in this conference? And the Trojans came out, and they did exactly what they had to do. And sure, it, being a Bruin, I could make excuses. Well, Jalen Hill wasn't there, and neither was Cody Riley. Mm-hmm. I don't think that makes a difference in that game, just being honest. you got to be real sometimes, and you got to you know, tip the cap and say, you know what, that team's a really good team. And I think the Trojans have done that. And I, I, As long as they keep their focus at the defensive end of the floor, as long as they understand that they have to defend at an elite level for them to be disruptive, because that length is something you cannot prepare for. Yeah. And we saw it in the BYU game earlier this year when BYU really struggled to make shots against USC. You, you know, especially in the NCAA tournament, you're going to have short turnarounds. And, you know, your coach says, hey, these guys got great length. You got to understand they're 6'10, they're 6'10, they're 6'11, 6'11, 6'7, 6'6, you know, whatever it is. And like the player's like, oh, okay, cool. But until you're out on the floor with it, you don't necessarily fully understand how it impacts you or the lack of shots like the quality of shots you're going to be able to find. Like when you line up your three-point shot and all of a sudden you got that length running at you and you're like, uh-oh, i got to put a little bit more on it. You're lowering, you're lowering the, the, the percentage of what that made shot would normally be if they had their rhythm. And, I, and again, I think that's something that's going to bode very well for the, for the Trojans moving forward. Yeah, I thought on, on Monday against Oregon, I thought it was the best they played as a team together, especially on the offensive end, just moving the ball. I mean, we, we saw a, a Drew Peterson give and go with Evan Mobley. That's something we hadn't necessarily seen a lot. Just the extra pass was there even more so than we normally see. And it was, you know, turned down a good shot for a great shot, which isn't always the case, hasn't always been the case with USC because they're, they're getting really good shots from, because Evan Mobley gets double teamed every time. But I also was really impressed with the way they responded. You know, the Arizona game, Arizona basically bullied them. 
you know, and, and took them out of their play and everything and, you know, got all the 50-50 balls, got the loose balls. And USC, you know, Andy Enfield at one point was screamed at his bench after they missed out on a, on a rebound. He screamed at them and told them they were soft. And, you know, I think they responded to that in this game against Oregon. What did you kind of think of the response with the way they lost against Oregon? I mean, uh, the way they lost against Arizona to come out and play the way they did in that first half against Oregon? I was really disappointed in the Arizona loss based on the standpoint of I thought they had so much momentum moving forward. And look, a lot of credit to Sean Miller's team because of the self-imposed sanctions because of COVID. Like that team's fought all year long. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna say anything about the Arizona Wildcats, what you're gonna say is, man, they have nothing, literally nothing to play for. They cannot play in the conference tournament. They're not playing in the NCAA tournament. Like they had nothing to play for during a global pandemic and still competed every single time they went out on the floor. Like that's that's pretty impressive because there's a lot of trust and a lot of love of the sport that comes through when you see them play that way. However, USC should have won that game. They should they should have come out. They should have taken care of business. They really should have. And if they did that and then they beat Oregon, now you're talking about a team that's knocking on the door to be a top 10 team nationally. And that doesn't only improve your seed line, but it also improves the overall perception of the Pac-12 in general. And I think that was the one thing that was most disappointing about that loss. Now, the question was, it's not that you lost teams losing conference play, but it is how you get up off the mat, right? It's like, mm-hmm. if you get knocked down, how do you get back up? What kind con- what do you show? Do you show a togetherness? Do you see a, a drawing within? Or do you see like kind of a situation like we saw at Texas over the weekend when they had a 19-point lead and you had two guys literally fighting on the bench in the midst of a 19-point lead and then they blow the lead and then, you know, like now you're coming in the game against Kansas and you're like, okay, well, who are, who are the Longhorns? Where are they? We don't know. Even after the loss, there was none of that for USC. It was like, okay, things didn't necessarily go the way they wanted to. Fine. How do we get how how do they bounce back in what we all perceive to be the biggest game? Are they going to turn the conference over to Oregon and say, "This is your conference now, take it the rest of the way"? We did all that we could throughout the course of the year to make the Pac-12 relevant, but at the end of the day, it's on to you. And if they had that mentality, I think that's a bad mentality, and I think that would have been exposed. But they didn't. Andy's team was ready to play, and they and that showed up in the seventeen to one. I mean, it was it was over before it began. <laughs> like if it was a boxing match, they would have thrown in the towel. And been like, cut me, Mick. This thing is over. You know, I mean, it's it's it was it was it was done, and it was really super impressive to see the focus and the attention to detail. I think this time of year, what you're looking for in teams is how detail oriented are they? Mm-hmm. Are they looking big picture all the time still, or are they dialing it in and fine tuning? Uh, that's what has impressed me most about Gonzaga is that even though they're beating everybody in their conference by thirty, they're not worried about that. They're worried about their mindset is on something much bigger. And because it's on something much bigger, they don't allow them to get caught up in – they don't want a perfect season. Like, I mean, they, if they get it, that's fine. That's not, the, that's not the point of what they're trying to accomplish in Spokane right now. They want to win a national championship. So in order to win a national championship, you need to tighten up here. You need to tighten up there. You need to do this. You need to do that. And you're, you're looking at the details to clean up before you get to the main tournament in a couple of weeks. And I think USC is getting to that point of the season, for me at least, where, look, we know they're in the tournament. We know they're going to have a good seed as it stands right now. Can you stay focused on the details? Can you stay true to the process to allow yourself to have the utmost opportunity to find success in the NCAA tournament? And if you do that, then 
look, look, like, everybody's going to be really happy. And USC, and they're going to be like, well, look, like this was the year it all came together. We thought this was the year that we could make this kind of run when we knew that we were going to get Evan Mobley. We knew we were going to have a special talent. We didn't pull a Ben Simmons LSU type season where they had a ton of talent and they didn't make the NCAA tournament. There was no Markel Fultzing. This opportunity of having a superior talent that is going to be a top one, two pick in the NBA draft. We made the most out of it. And we, we, he helped our program and, and we helped him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we've gotten for uh, USC this year. You, you talk about tightening things up. Uh, you're speaking of Gonzaga, what is the most important thing USC has to shore up to make sure that they can make a, you know, a legit run in the NCAA tournament? Quality of shot would be number one mm-hmm. for me. Quality of shot. And here's why. Teams in the NCAA tournament, you face Illinois, Kofi Coburn is going to be all over Evan Mobley, right? They're going to, they're going to be swarming and trying to give different looks. So they're going to force the kickout. When the kickout happens, is it one more to the leads to the one more that gets the, from the good shot to the great shot? Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm talking about. Like it's, it's not, it's not, they, they don't have bad shot selection. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say that when I talk about shot selection, but what I'm talking about is are they willing to turn down the good shot to find the great shot? Are they going to be poised enough to get the ball kicked out, drive it right back down their throats, and force the defense to then have to, like on the, on the, on the quick rotation, the quick ball reversal, drive that scene, force the defense to react, and then get the ball back to Evan so he can score? Because Evan Mobley is going to have to force the issue a little bit in the NCAA tournament. And he's done a better job of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's going to have to force the issue. No one's going to hand him anything in the NCAA tournament. And when you get to the second weekend of the tournament, which I'm fully anticipating that USC will be at, that means you're facing a one, a two, a three type seed, and you're going to see some really good basketball players that are going to defensively be able to throw some things at the Trojans that they haven't seen. And so that's the discipline of ball movement leading to great shots, not good shots. I think is going to be a big key for the Trojans in the NCAA tournament. I'm not worried about them defensively. I'm not, I, I think defensively they're going to be fine. I think they're so good with their length and it can be so disruptive that I think they're going to find a ton of success there. Yeah, I think, like, like I said, I think that was the thing that kind of stood out early in that Oregon game is the fact that they were doing that, you know, the quality of shots they were getting in that one. What do you think is USC's ceiling in this NCAA tournament? Uh, I think the ceiling is probably the Elite Eight. Okay. You know, given the right seed, like I, I did a show tonight, they said, okay, anybody, you, you cannot pick a one or a two seed to make the final four. Who would you pick right now? And I said, well, then if that's what you're going to give me, then what I'm going to go with is I'm going to go with USC and Florida State. Mm-hmm. Because I, I bet on defense this time of year. I bet on being disruptive. I bet on being unique. Um, and when you look at Florida State, a lot of similarities is length. A lot of similarities in, in, in the attention to the defensive end of the floor. I think Leonard Hamilton's team is consistently devalued and underappreciated. And I think this USC team is underappreciated still. I think this USC team is going to go in the NCAA tournament and they're going to feel like they haven't gotten the respect that they've deserved all season long. And if I'm Andy uh, and I'm that coaching staff, I'm telling them every single day, nobody believes in us. Nobody believes in us. Nobody believes in us. Look at this. Like, you, you, they don't think you can beat these guys. They don't, they don't, they don't think you can beat them. You know, hopefully, hopefully we get a chance. Golly gee, I'd love the opportunity. But that would be, I mean, I would be harping on that every day at practice. I would be taking up video of halftimes on ESPN and Fox and all these things. Who's the teams to beat in the NCAA tournament? And they're spending eight hours talking about the Big Ten. I'd be talking about that. Oh, look, 
we we can't evidently we can't play with Iowa. They think Iowa is an elite eight team. They're not even talking about us. And I would be that that would be my focal point. And if I do that, I'm telling you, this team could be really, really dangerous and really, really hungry entering in this NCAA tournament. Yeah, I mean, when they knock down shots there, they have a chance to be an elite team. Obviously, Evan takes so much attention in the middle that you get a lot of those open shots. But who's a guy that maybe needs to take his game to the next level for USC to really finish strong at the end of the regular season and into the tournament? Uh, Anderson. I think Anderson needs to step up uh, because guard play is always so important in the NCAA tournament, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got to be able to control the ball. You've got to be able to limit turnovers, but you also got to be the initiator at the defensive end. You've got to be the head of the attack. The best teams I played on at UCLA, like I go back to Cameron Dollar my freshman year. Cameron Dollar was an ultimate leader. He wasn't an outstanding player. Like he was good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not diminishing Cameron Dollar's abilities, but it wasn't like he was a pro, you know, but he knew exactly how to play with the pros that we had. And he knew where Toby Bailey wanted the ball. He knew where, uh, you know, Charles O'Bannon and Jelani McCoy and J.R. Henderson, where they could thrive and be successful. And he had impeccable leadership. And I think that that's going to be important. I think Peterson also offers that same kind of thing. I'd like to see better consistency from him at the offensive end of the floor right now. He needs to be a little bit more consistent in the scoring department. If those two things happen, the guards are the, the the focus for me as far as maxing out your potential of who you could potentially be in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, and you got a, a good glimpse of those two guys when they're really rolling and going well. Anderson had eight assists and one turnover against Oregon. Peterson, a double-double for the first time in a long time, coming off the bench. And you had, you yep. had a big switch there from Andy Enfield to, to flip those guys in the starting lineup, and it worked out for both of them. Uh, you brought up your UCLA days. So, you know, you play with some good bigs at UCLA as well. You had Dan Gazurik, you had Jerome Moiso. Both those guys were draft picks. Moiso was a lottery pick. How unique is Evan Mobley's talents as a big man, having played with and against some, some really quality big men during your days as well? The comp I like is Chris Bosch. Mm. Like, I think he has a lot of Chris Bosch to him. And that's, that's really good. You know, I mean, like, I, I think that he's so unique. And, and he translates so well as the modern day big of the NBA at the next level. I've said this all year. Uh, I like I love Kate Cunningham. I've been trying to get Evan Mobley on ESPN to do a halftime interview with Kevin Connors and I as we do this this segment called the Players Lounge for like three weeks. And I've been going back and forth with David Tuttle. And unfortunately, because of practice and travel schedules, we haven't been able to get this accomplished yet. But my feeling is very simple. Our, our draft experts, our, dra- our draft gurus, they have Kate Cunningham going number one. And I'm telling you right now, if I was a general manager, if I was a scout, if I was you know, in the front office and somebody asked me, hey, who do you think should be the number one pick in the draft? I would tell them the number one pick in the draft should be Evan Mobley. And I don't think it's really that close because I, I think, you know, you look at his form on his shot, he's only going to get better from beyond the arc he's going to become a better shooter he just he's not a bad shooter but he's going to become a better shooter and shooting is the one thing that's the easiest thing to fix at the next level what's really hard to fix is can you run the floor can you defend your position can you rebound all all those all the intangible things that you look for and i think a a lot of times by the way are you efficient Mm -hmm. like efficiency is a really big thing in the nba like evan mobley in my opinion, should average about 15 shots per game right now at USC. I know it's not in his DNA. It's not in his makeup to be the guy that demands 15 shots per game. I would love to see him do that because I think he'd be scoring almost 30 points a night. 
but at the next level, whoever drafts him, they're not looking at him to do that. They're going to look at him to come in and shoot six or seven shots. How efficient can he be? You know, they're going to look at him to try to see, can you get eight to ten rebounds a game? Can you do that? And the answer is going to be yes, he can. You know, can, can you help be a facilitator of our offense? You know, can you defend the pick and roll? All these things that you know that he's capable of doing, I think bodes really well for him at the next level. When I look at Kate Cunningham, I have some questions and concerns based on the standpoint of, look, both of them probably need to get stronger. There's no secret about that, especially when you look at the bodies that you see at the next level. But Kate Cunningham has had massive turnover issues this year. I mean, massive turnover issues, not, not little ones, big ones. He's had games where he's had seven turnovers. There was a three-game stretch where he had 18 turnovers in three games. You know, those are not the numbers you're looking for as a guy that's going to be a primary ball handler at the next level. So you look at that. Then you look at his shooting numbers. And at the end of the game, they're looking at points, points per game and those things. But how about the efficiency in which he shoots? And he has struggled with his shot in particular as of late. So to me, I, I, I want – I want the guy that transfers in and can impact the game right away and help me win. Who's going to make winning basketball plays for me? And I think Evan Mobley does that better than anybody else. I think Jalen Suggs is pretty close behind because I think Jalen Suggs at Gonzaga is not asked to do a whole lot because you have Corey Kispert, you have Drew Timmy, you have Joel Ayai, you have Andy Nembhard. You have a lot of guys that are really, really talented around him. But if you look at the numbers over the last couple of games, look at the shooting numbers of Jalen Suggs. He has 16 points on seven shots. And when you start having that level of production, things start working out pretty well for you. And you close your eyes and go, okay, if I put Jalen Suggs as a starting point guard on team whatever, Mm -hmm. can can he go in and will he make others around him better? Yes. Is he a guy that's a volume shooter or an efficient shooter? Oh, he's an efficient shooter. Perfect. I love that. And and that's, that's what helps you become a career player in the NBA. Now, when I look at Evan Mobley, I think he has the potential to be an all-star. I, do, I really do. I think he could be an all-star. I think Jalen Suggs could be an all-star. And if Cade Cunningham can learn how to keep some of these turnover issues down, I think he could be an all-star as well. Well, looking forward with that, Mobley, do you see Thursday's game at Colorado a little bit as a measuring stick for you know where he's grown? Because that's the, the one game this season where it really looked like, you know what, he kind of looks like a freshman in this game. And I think that you know Evan Batty and, and Jariah Horn kind of beat him up down low uh, with, with their physicality. Do you think this is a game where he can show where he's grown just in this season at USC? Yes, but I also think it's, it's been a growing process with Andy Enfeld and the coaching staff as far as how to use him and how to put them in the best situation to be successful. Because mm-hmm. um, you go back to that weekend in which they played Colorado and they played Utah. The Utah game was a game he didn't even attempt a shot, <laughs> and he played 30 minutes. I think it's, again, learning how to be a star, right? Learning how to assert yourself. Oh, where, where, okay, if they're double-teaming me on the block, where can I go to get a good look for myself but maybe even open up some offense for my teammate? Because there's not a selfish bone in his body. Mm-hmm. I, I truly, watching him play, I don't think that there's – innately something where he's like okay it's all about me right now even though sometimes i wish it was he does need a little a little touch of noah williams every once in a while as far as to, you know attacking a little bit more i don't think he needs 35 yep. shots in a game but you know he, he needs to to realize he's got to get a couple more uh himself without question and that's where it'll be key is when colorado is getting physical with him when colorado you know is shifting their defense towards him does he stay in the, in the same position or does he look to move and create an opportunity for him to find a good look for himself? And understanding, by the way, sometimes being selfish means that he's being completely unselfish. And, and that's hard for some players to understand. I always think, like, if you 
unselfishly pass the ball, then you're, you're not helping the team. You know, if you're Evan Mobley at times, Mm -hmm. like at times you have to force a shot because by you forcing a shot, that's going to continue to force the defense to draw to you. The more success that Evan Mobley has, the more the defense steps to him, the better quality shot that Taji is going to get on the outside. It's just that way. And I think that that to me is one of the things that has to be looked at in, in the way that this Colorado game is for a measuring stick standpoint is does he have that awareness? Does he understand that, that sometimes the best shot is a forced shot if it's a forced shot by Evan Mobley? <laughs> if it's a forced shot by somebody else, it's not a good shot. But not all players are created equal. You know, it's not a you get eight shots, you get eight shots, you get eight shots, and let's see who does well. No, it's sometimes you have to force your hand and say, okay, they're double teaming me here, then I got to get to here, and then I'm going to really rip and try to attack from the elbow and, and see if I can create something. And with his his length and you know his height, he can get even his four shots. He's shooting over someone, so it's not like he, he's really like in danger of getting his shot blocked every time or anything. Like if you have a guard trying to force some shots up, so I, I think it's it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how they use him, like you said, but also see how he reacts. You know, after the fact that that is the one time where he did look a little bit like a freshman. I'm curious about this USC team in the the grand scheme of things as far as the Pac-12. We've mentioned a little bit about the Pac-12, but do you feel like Andy Enfield has built a sustainable program or is this just a product of having Evan Mobley? Now the last six seasons, they should have made the NCAA tournament. This will be their, their would be their fourth NCAA tournament team. If you include last year and they had one team that was probably that Dejon Davis three quarter heave away from getting into the tournament as well. So, uh, you know, five, potentially five teams out of six years making the NCAA tournament is, has he built the program enough that, that they should be considered one of the top tier programs in the PAC 12? Yes. And no, because okay. here's why I say yes and no. Yes. Based on everything you just said. Okay, good. You're right. All those things are factually correct. There's, those are objective, not subjective. But at the same time, if you're talking about the top tier of the conference, you, you, you start right now in recent history with Oregon mm-hmm. and what Dana Altman's been able to accomplish. After that, you would still say, okay, hey, look, well, you know, it wasn't that long ago UCLA went to three straight Final Fours under Ben Howland. And then you go, okay, well, you know, Sean Miller, before notice of allegations, Eh, they were going to the Elite Eight almost every single year. Now, they couldn't get to the Final Four, but, man, he had that thing rolling. So if you're going to say, hey, where do they fit in, in, in the, the pecking order of the conference, I would say it's still below that. Gotcha. But I would say that they're right there, and I would say they're kind of kind of in a similar situation of a Colorado, and I think that Tad Boyle's teams have exceeded expectations every year. That doesn't mean, by the way, that Andy and his staff hasn't done a heck of a job. I think they have. But I would say that, in order to, to, to be in that mantle, you've got to have postseason success. Mm-hmm. You've got to show me something in the NCAA tournament. A run to the Elite Eight this year would certainly benefit them. I do think what Andy has built is consistency within the program, which I think is really important. And you can't get to the elite level without consistency first. I also think that the environment needs to improve, the home environment. Mm. Um, I, I think the students, need to come out and support this program and support this team. Obviously, we know that can't happen this year. We're well aware of that with COVID-19 and the, the protocols that are in place. But given the success of what Andy has built, there is plenty of times I watch USC games on, on film, and I'm like, where is everybody? <laughs> like, this is a good team. This is a good product. 
this is a good game. Andy needs the student body to show up on a consistent basis. And I understand that like maybe some people don't want to hear that, but that's what makes environments special in college basketball. When I go to Allen Fieldhouse, anytime I call a game there, their students are there no matter who they're playing, and they're loud. When I go to Spokane and I go to Gonzaga, their student section is out early and often and loud every single game, regardless of who they're playing. Even when they know they're going to win by 30 or 40 points, they're still showing up. They're still being loud. And I get it that L.A., we have more things to do. And I, by the way, I would say the same thing about UCLA. So I'm not just saying this about USC, just so that every Trojan that's listening to this goes, oh, of course, a Bruin's going to rip our students. <laughs> no, that's not the case. UCLA students have been historically bad lately. And both schools need to find a way to tap into the passion of the student body and create the most difficult road test for every team inside the Pac-12. Because if you look at the job that Andy's done and you look at the job that Mick Cronin is doing at UCLA, Mm -hmm. the epicenter of this conference should be Los Angeles. And in order to do that, though, they have to have the best environment. You can't say, oh, the best environment, best road trip in the Pac-12 from fan, fan energy is Arizona State, Arizona. Or, you know, boy, Oregon students, they, they really get excited when we come to town. No, it can't be that way. It's got to be L.A. And, and if, if I'm both those head coaches, I'm going after, especially after the years that they're both having, they're both, I think, doing extremely well and exceeding expectations. I'd be going, okay, when we get back, we got to get these students back because we need, we need the energy. I need the juice in the gym. If we get the juice in the gym from those students, man, we become next level. When a team starts to go on a run, it's not a 12-0 run against us. It stops at six. Mm. And when we go on a run, it's going to go to a 14 or 15 to nothing run. It's going to be 17 to one. You imagine what the Galen Center would have been like on Monday night if it was packed. And then, again, I realize pandemic, we can't do that this year. But I'm talking about moving forward to sustainability and, and the success of the program. If that place was sold out and it's a 17 to one start of that game, like that place would be rocking it would be magical to see and and i hope both la schools can get it because i do remember a time when i played in this conference and when usc was stacked calabrini uh, clancy trapanier bluefenthal brennan granville like it was those were epic games and we would go to the sports arena and the students would be there and they would be loud and yeah i know it's the crosstown rivalry game and that always usually brings students out but if it's like that every night, it becomes a very special place uh, and a very difficult place for opponents to find wins. How much do you think that would be assisted if the Pac-12 was more relevant on the national level? Just because when you add a number beside someone's name and suddenly there's a ranking, people get much more excited about the game. So you know, if you, even if you have you know a couple more teams that are 21 and 23 in the conference when you're playing Colorado or you're playing Arizona State, you know how, how does that change kind of the perception of fans and potentially get them out to to come uh, enjoy these games? Because there has been some tremendous basketball being played. Unfortunate this year that the USC fans aren't seeing Evan Mobley, but you know there's been some great basketball and a number of really really good players are coming through the Pac-12 every year. I think part of that is how how the brand is marketed from the Pac-12 overall. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think when you're talking about first-team All-American candidates in this conference right now, uh, you know, I, I have a vote in the Wooden Award. Uh, Evan Mobley was on my top 15 list. I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you that, but I did. <laughs> I also put McKinley Wright on that list. Oscar De Silva didn't make that list for me, and, but he was close. 
but are we promoting those three players? Are we comfortable enough with upsetting Arizona that we're promoting a USC player? You know, like it's, it's the Christian McCaffrey should have won the Heisman trophy at Stanford mentality, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like the, it has to, it can't just come from the school. It's also got to come from the conference. And if there's one thing I'd be critical of the Pac-12 is I don't think that they are marketing the stars enough because the conference, to your point, talent has not been an issue. There's been a ton of talent in the Pac-12. How, how do we market that talent? How do we brand that talent with the name, image, and likeness thing that's surely coming down the road, the pipeline? Look, we should be all over it. They should be cutting edge. And whoever the next commissioner is, I hope that they do it. Um, hopefully, too, that the, the other thing that would help would be having a conference network that's actually visible. Exactly. And where if USC isn't playing on Fox or isn't playing on ESPN, that they can play on the Pac-12 and people can still watch and go, man, this seems really good. Instead of playing games on the Pac-12 network that are really hard to find if you're not in the geographical footprint. And to be honest, even when you're in the geographical footprint, it's hard. There's some things that need to change at the conference office. And I hope the next commissioner, whoever it is, will aggressively attack the marketing, branding, and naming of what's going on and, and how to change the perception of the conference from the start. Like they need to be better salesmen to uh, garner the attention from the East coast audience that wants to watch or see high level basketball. And also, Oh my gosh. Like if you tell somebody on the East coast, Evan Mobley, he's one of only seven players in all of division one and was the only player in the power six conferences to lead their team in points, rebounds, steals, and blocks until Jeremiah Robinson got enough steals for Villanova on Saturday to join him on that list. Like, that's pretty remarkable. (laughs) How many people know that? I I don't think a lot. I think you hit on all the points that I am constantly kind of harping on with the the Pac-12 as a conference overall and the network, uh, you know, not supplying that extra – bump for for players and and whatnot to to be able to get them more attention and obviously there's there's the east coast goes to bed sooner west coast you know are they staying up to watch it i mean i I went to to school in tennessee and i stayed up plenty of saturday nights watching football the wee hours of the morning staying up watching west coast hockey you know six overtime games and whatnot in the nhl so i think that's a little bit of an excuse that's used over and over again but i think if you have a good enough product if Reggie Bush is on the field, I will stay up late enough on the West Coast to I'm mean, on the East Coast to watch that. And if it's you know put out there that I know who Reggie Bush is and I know you know the accolades and I know how good this guy is, so that I'm like, okay, I gotta tune in to see this guy. I don't want to miss this type of guy. And I feel like that that may be the case sometimes with players like Evan Mobley. You don't feel that on the national level from some people that it's man, you don't want to miss this guy. You you don't want to not see him in college. Sense of urgency. In in this day and age of basketball, we have one year with a player like Evan Mobley. There has to be a sense of urgency. Kevin Love, sense of urgency. Markel Fultz, sense of urgency. It's not just a USC thing. It's across the board Mm -hmm. for the Pac-12. And to your point, like, look, I'm a Bruin, right? I knew every time USC was playing with Reggie Bush and Lendell White. (laughs) And I watched every single game because I was like, this is so much fun. I got to see what they're doing. Like, I can't believe it. They're going to crush us. I pray they don't crush us when we play them. I hope our team beats them. That would be so amazing because these guys are so good. And I celebrated watching USC football and appreciating what Pete Carroll and that coaching staff built. And I think right now it's across the board in the conference. When we get to college football next year, 
who are the who are the five guys that we're going to promote right away? Where's the emails being sent out? Not from just the school, but from the conference. It's like, have by the way, have you noticed our All American candidate? By the way, have you seen the numbers that uh, the quarterback from Arizona State's throwing up? He could be a Heisman Trophy candidate. Whatever it is, like you know, I mean, like find it and celebrate it. You know, and, and I think if you do that, you start to make it like must-see TV. People want to watch stars, right? When we watch television shows, we watch stars. When we watch movies, we, we watch stars. L.A. is about stars. The Pac-12 should be about stars as well. Because when we, be, when we become about stars, it doesn't diminish what these coaches are doing. But what it does is it promotes them to a point where we can replenish the stars when they leave. For a long time, I heard, well, we lost more one-and-done guys to the NBA than almost any other conference in the country. Okay, but Kentucky loses more to the NBA every single year, and they're still winning 30 games a year, except for this year, <laughs> right? So that excuse doesn't really work for me. But what does Kentucky do? Kentucky promotes their kids more than anybody. The SEC promotes their product extremely well. Mm-hmm. Najee Harris should not have left to go to Alabama. He did. Who did Najee Harris grow up watching play? USC. Well, why wasn't he a Trojan? Because his, in his mind, and a lot of kids' minds in the West region, when you talk about relevancy in, in college athletics, how much does the Pac-12 come up first? When does it come up first? I don't know if it does right now. And it needs to change. I talked to Casey Jacobson about this the other day, the all-time great from Stanford. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, when we used to play, how were those games? He goes, bonkers bonkers he goes it was insane i said yes i said but when i watch the pac-12 right now and then i go watch a big 10 game i go man the big 10 even without fans there's like a better juice a better vibe a better energy to it can we get the pac-12 back to that can we make the west coast care enough about the sport that's being played don't worry about the east coast i think too often we focus on the east coast how about this can we get the people in our geographical footprint to care enough Mm. and then we can grow from there but if we can't consistently get the geographical footprint of our own conference to be all bought in and be like, you know what, this is the conference of champions. Oh, my gosh. Look at the talent. Look at the stars that we have in all sports. All sports. Cal's golfer just won the Genesis Invitational. Max Homa. And he's a local kid out of Cal- Southern California. And he goes to Cal, and now he started a professional career, and he wins the Genesis Invitational this weekend. Man, that should be all over it for the Pac-12 promote the stars not only when they're with you but after they're gone too what are they doing at the next level why is it the conference of champions look at the championships that they're winning after they leave the conference of champions look at the good that people are doing in their life even when they're not playing sports look at the charity work look at the leadership and diversity and and inclusion and all the things that are social injustices look at how much of former pac-12 athletes by the way have taken leadership roles in that forum in that space if the conference starts promoting that, I think things would change really quickly. I really do. We'll see when we get a new commissioner in the Pac-12 and see what kind of adjustments and changes are made. 
hopefully all those things that you just talked about come true and that the Pac-12 can start rising back up and you know be the true conference of champions and be on the same level as the other Power Five because I think we all feel that, that they're a little bit below right now, especially in the two power uh, sports of college football and college basketball, just because haven't had those national championships in the recent years, and that's what everyone really pays attention to. So you know, we'll see, see how things continue to progress. And like I said, when the new commissioner and a new TV deal coming soon, uh, those things will, oh. will hopefully play themselves out in, in a positive way for the Pac-12. I, I, I agree with you. I, look, I don't think this is going to be the year that we're going to win a championship in basketball, but I think that the, the groundwork is there. Like, and I, I tell people this all the time. So I did the SEC. And I came in on Super Tuesday with uh, Brad Nessler for ESPN. And I came in the conference. They had three teams in the NCAA tournament. And it was like, Sean, it's, it's not going to be great. Within two years, they had seven. <laughs> and the expectation level is now that they're going to get six to seven every single year. The Pac-12, I think, is trending in that direction. I think the hire of Mick Cronin is, is really working well at UCLA. I think equally the hire of Kyle Smith at Washington State mm-hmm. has been really essential what the conference needs more than anything is out of conference success in November and December. What it needs is the bottom half of the conference to win games. That they shouldn't win every now and then uh, you can't have seasons where, you know, Washington Cal in particular this year, or especially Arizona state, such a disappointment based on where we thought they were going to be at the start of the year. Yeah. When they, they don't meet expectations, it brings the conference down. It doesn't elevate it up. And so what I've told people a lot right now down the stretch of this basketball season, what we need to see in the PAC 12 more than anything is separation. And unfortunately, a lot of games going against each other, that might not happen. But right now, you need USC, Oregon, UCLA, Colorado to separate themselves from everybody else. And if that means Stanford doesn't get in and right now they're on the outside looking in, then so be it. But if you would rather have four teams that have a chance to wear the home uniform in their first game of the NCAA tournament than have four, five teams in and have three of those teams wearing road-colored uniforms, meaning that they're the lower-seeded team in their opening mm-hmm. round. Because that doesn't give you the opportunity to advance and make that noise on that big stage like you want to see. Yeah, a couple teams in the in the first four seems to be pretty commonplace. The, the Pac-12 has been a steady participant in the first four of the last few years. So we'll see We'll see where they ended up. But this last two weeks will make uh, very interesting Pac-12 basketball. USC with a chance to, to win their first title since 1985, their first solo title potentially in 60 years. A ridiculous number there. But thanks so much to Sean for jumping on and, and talking with us, taking up a, a ton of his time today. Uh, I know he's been working radio all day, so uh, go give the, the vocal cords a rest, Sean. We really appreciate you jumping on, though, and talking a little USC and Pac-12 basketball with us. No problem whatsoever, and I'll just tell you this. The Trojans have the best chance of anybody in the conference to advance deepest, and they've been the best basketball team for a long time in this conference this year. And I'm glad that people are, are, are noticing the talent that they have. And I hope they continue to have success down the stretch run, as I was saying, creating separation, moving up. I'd love to see them on a three line. You get them to a three line, I think there's a chance they could, they could make a Final Four. And a three line avoids, you know, Baylor or Gonzaga potentially as well, at least one game further along. So we'll see. I mean, they gotta, they gotta take care of business on the mountain trip. And that's always a very difficult one with the altitude and just places that USC doesn't traditionally play very well at. So this week could determine a lot for them, uh, heading into that final week. And, you know, that, that final regular season matchup against UCLA is only a half game back right now. So could be a, a game at the end of the season to determine the, the Pac 12 regular season title. Uh, but will be fun the next week. 
week and a half or so of basketball. Definitely, definitely looking forward to it. But again, thanks, Sean, so much to, for joining us, and, and uh, thanks for you know all the work that you're doing, you know, promoting the Pac-12 as well. I appreciate it, and uh, I, I love this conference, and I have no problem promoting what is already known to be good. And you heard it here from a Bruin. He's picking the Trojans as the best team to to make it through the NCAA tournament, the best chance to to make a deep run. As I talked about earlier with Tajidi, and this isn't meant as a slight to him, but I think you have to be concerned about the potential of smaller guards like Edie wearing down in a physical matchup like you can get in the NCAA tournament. Then at the end of the game, you're wondering, do they have the legs to be able to knock down a shot in a critical moment? So to close out the show, I want to reach back into the archives, dust off the scrapbook, and take it back to my own high school basketball days. At six foot two, I was asked to defend post players and guards, pretty much everyone from six foot four ACC bound wings to six nine big men. But the most difficult person I ever had a guard was five foot ten Javon Randolph. He played at East Hall High in Gainesville, Georgia, where I'm from, on a team that was number one for much of our senior year and a team that ended up winning the state championship. He could knock down shots. He could beat you off the dribble. He was basically a terror to try to guard, especially because East Hall would run him off of all kinds of screens. I mean, I went back and watched one play on tape when I was in high school, and it was something like nine or ten picks that I had to fight through to try to get to him, and then he ends up knocking down a shot. Javon went on to play D1 at Savannah State, where he led them in scoring back-to-back years his junior and senior years. I wanted to bring Javon on to talk about the preparation between games it took to prepare his body and how he dealt with teams that tried to really be physical with him because that's literally what our defensive game plan was against him in high school. I was told, grab him, hold him, bump him, do as much as you can just to try to possibly wear him down so if maybe we kept it close to the end of the game, he wouldn't be able to hit a game-winning shot. So welcome to the show, Javon. You know, glad to have you bringing back my high school days a little bit, but wanted to kind of get your your thoughts on it because I see you as a similar type of player as Tajidi. When when teams had the game plan that we had against you, which was you know just grab a hold of him, do as much as you can to be as physical with him. How did you kind of deal with that in high school? You know, going from you know being a, a guy that was running off all those screens and trying to to get those open shots. Well. Being a smaller guard, going up against uh, tough defenses that are geared towards you, uh, the main thing I used to focus on was using my speed and using my quickness. But also, you know, that's the hardest thing about, you know, when someone's trying to guard you and uh, put a lot of pressure on you. The, The hardest thing to do is to be able to still focus through the pressure and still try to, you know, do whatever it is you need to do on offense as far as scoring or setting the play up for the coach. The main thing, though, I would say is, is making sure you exercise your speed and learning how to counter-react to whatever defense is being thrown at you. I mean, if you a smaller guard, you pretty much done seen all different types of defenses, so uh, you should already be sort of kind of prepared of what you think they're going to do. And as long as you're using your quickness to have a counter-reaction, it could, it could pretty much be in your favor. One of the things is when you go to college, obviously the guys get bigger and stronger. You know, in high yeah. school, I was a uh, you know 155 pounds. When I got to college and I played baseball, you know, I put on 30 pounds. So it's a lot different the guys that are guarding you high school to college. So I was kind of curious. You know, college you're playing a couple times a week, sometimes three. Right. How do you prepare your body as a smaller guard, knowing that if you're driving in the lane and taking some contact, or if teams are going to pressure you, you know, how do you kind of set yourself up during the week before a game to be prepared for you know that that physical activity? You know, when you're playing the games. One thing I would definitely say is you definitely got to take care of your body. Uh, you got to eat well uh, and get plenty rest uh, so that your body can recover, but also 
getting your mind together and getting your mind right for whatever defenses are being thrown at you. Uh, even if you play two or three games a week, I mean, every team is a different scenario. So I would say uh, body recovery is very important. Also, uh, me getting a little older when I was in college, I realized that, you know, working out during the season is actually positive. Uh, a lot of the NBA players do it a lot. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't take it as serious because I had a whole lot of quickness, but exercising your body, uh, working out with them weights, it, it definitely helps you out because as a smaller guard, going off big screens, you're going to get stinged a lot. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of the big guys, they like to push you you know, push you a little bit, nub you when you're coming off the screens. And if your body is not prepared uh, like it should be, I mean, it could pretty much uh, damage you during the game. I'm, I've played in many games with a lot of bumps and bruises, you know, from, from getting hit from, these, from taller guys. But the ultimate weapon, I would say, is using your quickness and speed. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's a long game, so um, a lot of, a lot of, defenses you know that they come out very strong in the first half sometimes they have to uh get prepared for the second half and the thing is if you're in better shape than the person that's bigger than you uh you do have that window of opportunity to be able to to get off some of the things that you might want to get off well i hope that i contributed some of those bumps and bruises that you that you, uh, <laughs> that you got in high school at least uh, well, Jay, yeah. thanks so much for joining us and, and for for jumping on the podcast for us, just to, to reminisce a little Absolutely. bit and take us back and, and give us a little insight to a smaller guard and what you have to go through to to kind of prepare yourself and, and you know be ready for that that physical matchup, you know, as a smaller guy. Thanks to the guards Javon Randolph and Tajidi, as well as former forward Sean Farnham for jumping on to talk some hoops. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast, part of the Peristyle podcast family. I'm your host, Shotgun Spratling, saying thanks again to our guests and to all of you for listening. We hope you'll be back to join us for the next episode. Heard it on the sidelines. Heard it. Heard it on the sideline with Shotgun Spratling. Spratling. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.